The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, when we started the show, we wanted to have a conversation on some very tough subjects, and we've had a lot of fun doing just that. I mean, really, our show was at its best when the news was at its worst. And uh, I'm just so proud that we were able to take on real issues and, I don't know, hopefully say something powerful while making people laugh and on some very, very dark days. Um, my only regret is that we won't be around to cover this truly insane uh, election season. Um, although on the plus side, on the plus side, I must say, our show going off the air has to only mean one thing. Racism is solved. <laughs> we did it. We did it. In fact, in fact, in fact, I think we have a photo. Surprise! Hey all, I'm Aisha Harris and welcome to a special mini episode of Represent. So as many of you are probably aware, last week, Comedy Central canceled the nightly show with Larry Wilmore after more than a year and a half on air, with a network president stating that the show failed to connect with and gain traction with audiences. This leaves a gaping hole in the realm of late night television, especially in terms of inclusion. Aside from Wilmore, the only other non-white guys holding down the fort on major TV shows are Trevor Noah on The Daily Show and Samantha Bee's Full Frontal. And I'm very sad to see it go. The final episode aired last Thursday evening with a bittersweet farewell, with his former Daily Show boss, John Stewart, stopping by to wish him well and celebrate all the show was able to accomplish in such a short time. I spoke with Wilmore by phone to talk about the end of the show. So I'm happy to be here with Larry Wilmore under not so happy circumstances, but it's great to have you on the show. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Nice to be here. And uh, I've noticed you've been getting sent a lot of farewell booze these days from Samantha Bee, Stephen Colbert. So I have to ask exactly how drunk are you right now at this very moment? <laughs> I am not drunk right now, despite how it may sound. Anyway. <laughs> uh, I didn't really. I drank a man when uh, Sam B and them sent us that wine. I drank that wine during the show. I was a little toasty during that show. That was fun. But I didn't drink last night. I drank, uh, we had a party afterwards and I had a few beers, but, you know, it was nothing too bad. Good, good. Well. So I'm not, so it's okay. I'm not hurting you guys. And I, <laughs> I didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't tie one on too bad. But there's still time. I may do some drinking this weekend. Yeah, yeah. You've got the whole weekend to, to live it up. Exactly. And... Brother doesn't have a job to go to. Brother's got a lot of time to drink right now. 
So, so uh, I'm curious as to whether you had any hints beforehand that this might be the end, or or did it sort of creep up on you? Was there were that was there any talk behind the scenes? Really good question. Um, I guess the only hint that I had was that we had not really been in communication with the network for a long time, so we felt like, well, we don't know what's going on. You know, anything mm-hmm. could happen. Um, we didn't know if that was a good sign or a bad sign, you know. We knew they were putting a lot of attention on The Daily Show because, you know, they just started last year and it was a big transition and that type of thing. Right. But um, we just didn't know. The expectation that we all had was even if they didn't pick up our show, uh, we felt we would be around for the election. So the big surprise for for me and for everyone was uh, when we were told we only had four shows left. That was like uh, whiplash right then. Right, right. <clears throat> and and how, I mean, how do you feel about not being around for the election? Were, were, were you already thinking about sort of the the different takes you would you would have if Hillary won or if Trump won? Well, we haven't gone that far yet because we try to react to, uh, we always try to react in the moment to things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's some things that, you know, we we start thinking about as we get closer. Like we were just about to start talking about the debates and what we we're going to do, but we hadn't had big conversations about that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and how we might uh, maybe uh, have some fun with them blackening, getting closer and closer, right, and those types <laughs> of things. Huh? Yeah. So we were just starting to have those conversations. I mean, it was such an interesting summer. Those two conventions were so crazy. You know, I've never seen uh, an election season like this. So I was very excited. I was, I'm, and I'm still very much looking forward to these debates. I think they're going to be crazy. Um, and I just couldn't wait to cover them. So I'm very disappointed about them. Mm. And Comedy Central's president, Kent Alterman, stated uh, when talking about the cancellation that the show hasn't, quote unquote, hasn't connected with our audience in ways that we needed to. Uh, do you think that's the case? And, and if so, why do you think that is? Well, yeah, it has been a struggle in the ratings, no doubt. You know, um, there's nothing we can argue about those numbers. But there's a difference between we haven't quite gotten the numbers and the show isn't connecting and and starting to gel and those types of things. Um, Rory Albanese, our executive producer, also worked on The Daily Show from the beginning, and he remembers before The Daily Show clicked that the show, they they felt the show was really great at a time when nobody was really watching or pay, paying attention to it. And he would look around and goes, man, does anybody know we're making this great show? <laughs> you know? And then... Uh, you know, the election of 2009-11 happens, and suddenly a lot of attention goes to the show, and, and it really takes off, you know, found its its win, so to speak. And, and he felt like our show was in that same position, like we were just about to to turn that corner of getting more of that audience, you know. Um, and we all felt that, too. We all felt like we were in a groove. We were really hitting our stride. Um, mm-hmm. our, our attacks on things were really sharp, and... You know, our contributors are doing good work. So we really felt like a nice little oil machine. We just felt like we weren't getting all the viewers we were like, you know. So that could be very frustrating. You know, it's part of television. We're not the only show that has had that happen. It's, you know, it, that type of thing can happen. So Yeah. Because it's a different, let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different feeling when you're on a show and you know you're not doing it, you know, where you're going, ah, this show is just not working. Mm-hmm. We just can't, I don't know what it is. Like, that's a different feeling. 
for us, it felt the opposite. It felt like nobody's seeing what we're doing. <laughs> you know, right. that's what it felt like to us. So. Yeah, I mean, it does. It does seem like it. It. it, it, it not giving you enough time to sort of, or do you feel as if they didn't give you enough time, especially since the elections were coming up? Yeah. Uh, because it, it would have been nice to see what you guys would do. And, and plus, it's just like, that's the time. Sure. when, No matter what show it is, whether it's The Daily Show, I imagine all of those shows, they, they get a boost when the elections yeah. happen. I personally felt that way. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of having all the different types of voices on television. I think it gives people a nice little, you know, buffet that they can just pick and choose how they want to get their, you know, news entertainment, I guess, right? Right. But I felt there was a big, um, and I expressed this to Ken Dalterman, we talked after the last show, I expressed to him that I was very disappointed that they didn't try to promote our shows together. Mm. We were two black men in late night doing smart comedy shows. That hasn't happened before. And uh, I was really upset that we never did any mutual promotion and really tied the shows together. You, you know, the way John and Stephen, when uh, Stephen was doing Colbert, you know, exactly. uh, they did a lot of cross-promotion. Uh, you saw the relationship between the two people, which was so much fun. And I thought we could have gotten so much mileage out of Trevor and I having that type of relationship on the air. I'm an African-American. He's an African-African, you know. <laughs> I could be teasing him about that, whatever. Yeah. But at least people would know that there's a distinction between us as personalities and then they would see the distinction between the shows, you know. Right. Right. Was that anything you had talked about before that conversation you had with him after the show? Or had you discussed that with Trevor himself? Yeah, but you, those can only go so far. You know, I yeah. don't work for the network. I just do my show and they don't want to hear you giving them advice all the time about how to do their jobs, you know. Right. So, I mean, do you, you have know. do you have any feeling that maybe part of the issue it was and and you've spoken a bit about this before is and you've joked about it the fact that you know your show is very you center race and and especially blackness within your comedy and it makes uh-huh. and it makes people uncomfortable and do you think maybe the idea of having two black guys even though you guys are have a totally different way of doing sure. theater and comedy do you think that the idea of putting you two together maybe scared off the the network and and they were afraid that people wouldn't buy that I don't know if they were afraid. I don't know if that's the case. Um, I think, though, unconsciously, the audience could have felt they might have been getting the same thing and could say, well, why do I need to stick around for this? That's possible. You never know, right? Mm-hmm. It's tough, you know. Well, we premiered, let's say, a year and a half ago, right, in February. So we were the new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. But by the spring, three other new shows had come on in our wake. And so there were a lot of new places for people to go in that amount of time. And it's easy to forget about the nightly show. You know, sometimes you need time for everybody to settle down and figure out where they're going to be, I think, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different factors that you can you can point to for it. It's hard, it's hard to point to one thing, but I don't know if that's particularly one from the network's point of view. But you never know. Yeah. I never put anything past any of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been in the business for a long time, you've worked on so sure. many different shows. Now you were around for a lot of the the, the classic '90s sitcoms, and and sure. you also are on Bernie Mac show. And mm-hmm. you know, I I I wonder now you're an executive producer on Blackish, and also the upcoming Isare HBO comedy Insecure, correct? Well, I'm I'm not uh, involved with Blackish anymore. I left the show to do. Um, you were. You started the show. The, 
Yes, correct. And I co-created Insecure with Issa. Right. Well, for both of those shows, those are sitcoms. They're not late night, but they are they are very unapologetically black or I imagine insecure Absolutely. will be. I haven't seen it. And they they talk very frankly about race. Yep. Do, do you why do you think there's currently such a disparity between, you know, now we have this sort of like flourish of, of black, different black scripted comedy and, and, and TV and drama. And, and late night has not gotten there yet. Like, why is it taking so long for late night to get there? Um, that's a great question. I have, I have no idea. It could be one of those things that it just takes a while for that to happen. Who knows? I haven't really investigated it that much to know the answer to it. But it is a real interesting observation. I hadn't really even thought about it in that way, to be honest with you. Because you remember when Arsenio was on, what, 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, yeah. When he was first in, and he was wildly successful. And, uh, you know, his show, you could call unapologetically black at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the only thing like it on television. There was nothing else quite like it. Hip-hop had not really invited... Um, invaded television yet almost in any way remember mtv would only show white videos for a long time <laughs> right you know? i mean who could can you imagine that that was the 80s when that happened it's hard to even think of that now you know yeah especially with michael jackson and, and yeah. all that it's like it was, could you imagine it was a big deal to put michael jackson i was like are you kidding me mtv come on <laughs> get over yourself you know so arsenio and in living color which i worked on living color you know those shows were we were doing something brand new to people, you know, and we never apologized for, for blackness or hip-hop or any of those things back then. But, mm. you know, that kind of, it felt like it kind of went away for a while. But, you know, would pop up here and there. Right. I mean, that, I mean, that's another thing is that we have these sort of waves in, in general. Yeah. And, and even though you're not on the show, uh, on The Nightly Show anymore, I, I don't know if you plan to like dive back into more sitcom or more scripted work in that sense, but it, sure. it, it does seem like we are sort of in this this very great wave of we're getting all these different sorts of black TV now. It's not all just created, written by, and starring Tyler Perry sort of stuff. We have all this other, yeah, all the other, other things to change. Creating content, we yeah, have a lot of young young people who names we don't even know not familiar with that are creating things. You even have people like Aziz Ansari. Right, exactly. Doing, you know, who's bringing a new voice into television and, um, you know, shows like Transparent, you know, are bringing something even completely new to television that's never been there before. Mm. You know, and all these different types of voices just really makes it so uh, fun to tell stories, you know, and to, and to mine all these new areas. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like, though, because especially when you were doing the Bernie Mac show at that point, sure. it was like the Bernie Mac show and everybody hates Chris. And that was pretty much all we had back then. Well, there no, was... at the time, it was that was before everybody hates Chris. It was, was Bernie it? Mac show and Damon Wayne's. It was my wife and kids. Oh, you're right. And, uh, I always forget yeah, about and, my wife and kids. But yeah. Yes, and then and then Fox decided to program us directly against my wife and kids. <laughs> I remember like to give black people a choice. Like black people then had a Sophie's choice of which black show they were gonna watch. You know? <laughs> uh, that, that that's annoying. <laughs> it's like I I dare you black people pick one. Pick one. <laughs> do you think though that we've reached a sort of turning point or do you feel as though we might there's always a chance we might recede back into that sort of drought that that has happened after these I waves? think we are at a turning point now because there's so many outlets. It's mm. not just controlled by three networks. Um, 
you have all the networks, you have all of cable, you have premium cable plus basic cable, but now you have things like Hulu and Amazon and Netflix, and there's so many ways for people to distribute content. People are distributing their own content now, you know. Mm. So there's a lot more opportunities for voices to be heard out there. And there's a, a big need of companies to want content, and that content has to be created. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And aside from the dearth of sort of the racial and gender inclusion that is happening within late night. I love the word dearth, by the way. It's one of my favorite words. Oh, (laughs) that's one of my favorite words, too. I use it a lot. Uh, (laughs) But aside from like that, the the fact that there are very few non-white guys in late night TV, is there Mm -hmm. any other area within late night where you feel there's overall need for improvement whether it's the way we attack these sorts of politics or, or subject matters? Sure. I would say it's in the writer's room and in the producer ranks, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very proud to have Robin Beatty as our head writer, a black woman as a head writer at Late Night. Mm-hmm. It's never been done before. And uh, I just feel it's important to make sure behind the scene is as filled with diverse voices as in front of the scene is. And those types of things, I believe, are done consciously, you know, and they're done on purpose. You have to pull people into the system. There are many talented people out there who just need that opportunity. Yeah. And do you feel like The Nightly Show has, in a way, especially with having someone like Robin Thede on the show, do you feel like even though it's gone now, it's sort of helped move the needle a little bit? I know it's a little early to tell, but do, do, do you feel as though in that time span you were helping to do something different and hopefully push it forward? Oh, absolutely. I've, um, I've been very fortunate that I've had the chance to do that many times because um, I've been able to have many writer's rooms and I've always done that. So it wasn't my first time doing it. You know, um, I remember being on panels back in the late 90s when I was doing the uh, PJs. And they would say, uh, Larry, how many, how many writers of color do you have in your room? And I'd say, hold on, go ask friends in Frasier. <laughs> I'd say, why are you asking me? I'm the one that has the diverse writers. <laughs> you know, those are the places you need to ask because that's where it's needed the most, mm-hmm. you know, in those types of shows. And so I was, I was, I always made it a point to say that. So. Do you think, I mean, I, yeah, I, see, I've been, I've been fighting for a long time. You have. <laughs> I do. Re- I remember the PJs, though, and I remember it being very controversial. There were a lot of, especially sure. black people who were not, Absolutely. they felt it was very stereotypical. But, like, do sure. you think that that might have been one reason why they asked you whether there were people of color in the room? Or? Oh, no, they asked me no matter what show. Same thing with the Bernie Mac show. Didn't matter. Um, they, they would just ask us those questions when you're doing a black show. You know? How many black writers do you have? <laughs> That's such a weird question to ask. I know, it's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because it, it feels like black people and people of color in general are always having to answer these questions and no yes, one's ever asking them. Do, and I would say, look, me alone is more than all of those shows combined. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and it would, no, it was true. It's yeah. very true, you know. Yeah. And two more questions I'd like to ask. One is, well, the first question what do you hope the legacy of the show will be? Yeah, those kind of questions are really tough, you know, because when you're in the eye of the hurricane, you're making the show, you just want the show to be good, you know. Uh, you want it to be appreciated and those types of things. I always say I'll leave it to other people to to write those things on the show, you know. But, you know, I'm I'm very happy that we set out to 
represent voices that didn't get a chance to be heard all the time in late night and and the same with content and the type of material that we were doing is material that you know isn't aren't the easiest subjects to talk about and I feel like as John pointed out we had that conversation we started that conversation I'm very proud that we were able to do that you know mm-hmm. yeah and the question I ask all of my my guess is when if you can tell me about the last time you felt as if you saw yourself on screen that something else that you were watching accurately spoke to something in within your life that's an interesting question um you can also tell me the first time you might have felt that way well the first time certainly when i was a kid and i watched flip wilson for the first time on television and, I mean, that's when black people never had their own show. And here was a guy leading up his own variety show and was funny and engaging and everything. And and for me, it was huge. It's, it was the thing that I think first motiv- motivated me to go into this business. Mm. Um, so that definitely was the first person. Yeah. I used to love that show. I it's it's just too young to know that show. Well, I <laughs> I did not watch it in the in, the first incarnation, but I definitely yeah. watched it on TV Land when they would air the episodes when I was a kid. He was so, very funny. Yeah, he was great. Um, so yeah, that's the first that I remember. Is that wrong? Is that horrible that I can't think of it? No, like <laughs> no, not every, not everyone can remember. So, sometimes it's like because oh, I've never felt represented. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, that's okay. That's not a not a problem at all. Well, I just yeah. want to thank you so much, Larry, for coming on the show and and talking. Oh, with it's me. my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I I look forward to seeing where you go next, and and maybe we'll see you in late night again soon. I hope. Yeah. And that is all. It was really fun talking to Larry, and I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. We'll return to our regularly scheduled podcasting next week. If you loved this conversation and want to hear more, rate us on iTunes. And Represent is produced by the amazing Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And that outgoing music you're hearing right now is performed by the awesome San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Music.